Welcome to the first Gospel Conversations of 2016. We open up this year with a special visit from uh, our dear friend Rick Watts. Rick is the Professor of New Testament at Regent College in Vancouver and he's visiting Australia uh, so he's, he's offered to give us this one-off talk and the, the theme of the talk is the narrative structure of the Gospels and not just the narrative structure of the Gospels in a descriptive manner but what does this narrative structure say about theology? What does it say about God? And furthermore, where did the narrative structure come from? So what you'll hear in this talk is a breathtaking overview of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. A snapshot of the authorship, a snapshot of the narrative structure that they each have and how, the, how we can compare and contrast those. And in particular, um, a really, really interesting um, interpretation of John and where John fits into that narrative structure. Importantly, Rick then puts the Gospels and their structure in the light of the Old Testament, and in particular, the book of Isaiah. And from that beginning, he asks, whose idea, whose concept was this narrative structure? Who invented it? His answer is really worth listening to. So this is another one of the talks where you really got to put your seatbelt on. Um, Rick is a, uh, a um, electric speaker, um, entertaining, um, but driven with a, um, a really central passion for Jesus. And his desire in these talks is that we would understand that the point of the narrative structure is that our God is in, is in the story of life and he is nowhere more in the story of life than he is in Jesus Christ. So enjoy this and God bless you. Dawn drawn Falcon in his writing. Should we start now? Good. Uh, who likes uh, Gerald Manny Hopkins? Anybody? Ah, oh, yes, you're out there. Excellent. Sorry. Um, I just draw your attention to this statement over here. Process system redesign can affect mindset and behaviour change. That's really what we're talking about, I think, here. Okay. Uh, so the basic question tonight is, do the narrative shapes of the Gospels actually contribute anything significant to our knowledge of God? And I think basically the answer from the church at large is no. No, they can't. Now, why do I say that? Well, I say that because um, sound bites work because they express a striking thought in a memorable way. Now, for this reason, they're not a modern invention. The ancients had them. If Mark Strom was here, he'd talk about them. They're called aphorisms. It's not quite as sparkling, but it captures this idea. And your average first century urbanite knew scores of them. So marry well, pick your time, a cost to every commitment, nothing to excess, and so on. I think Mark says something like 256, weren't there? Know thyself. Anyone know? Know thyself. Yeah, yeah, a whole bunch of them. But 256, I think, was kind of the deluxe edition. 
Um, Jesus too obviously spoke in such ways and while he's not the first to do so he's surely amongst the most adept and you would know some of the classics anyone love your as your yeah blessed are the yeah, poor in spirit I have come not to call the righteous but the Sabbath was made for people not people for Sabbath and the justly famous golden rule do unto others so he knows how to communicate so these, these pithy aphorisms really do well. Now, it's unsurprising, it seems to me, that for most Christians, their knowledge of Jesus basically consists of a collection of these sayings, usually in no particular order, and then seasoned with some stories about the strange things Jesus did, walking on the water, raising people from the, from the dead, uh, watering to wine if you're a recovering Baptist and trying to enjoy what's going on here tonight, those kinds of things. Right? Uh, and then they're all bracketed by Nativity and Easter. Now, I would argue that's generally the narrative out of which most Christians know Jesus. This is really the only bit that's ordered. The rest of it's come somehow amorphous in there and at the end Jesus gets kind of... He's executed and what happened? I <laughs> <laughs> My goodness. Okay, what do I do to untouch it? Right? Okay. Like me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Well, um, of course, what's happening now is people spend more time uh, in the Gospels, they realize they're actually very carefully crafted narratives. We don't have time to talk about this, but they're actually ancient biographies. There's a lot of thought that goes into them. You can only fit so much in, so you have to be selective about what goes in, and they're doing that. So these come from the Gospels. They're highly con carefully constructed, uh, sorry, carefully constructed, and highly textured. Now, as you would probably know, this is not news to most of you, I guess. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke share not only many of the same sayings and stories, but pretty much follow the same order probably familiar with that. If you've done any theological study, uh, this would be known as the synoptic tradition and how they relate is called the synoptic problem. So I don't know if you're familiar with that, but that's the story. So synoptics means basically with the one eye. So they're coming at this from the same perspective. They share the same overall outlook. Uh, at the same time, of course, Matthew and Luke have their own substantial additions. Sometimes they're adding similar material, sometimes they're adding unique material. And you could probably think of an example in Matthew's Gospel. What stands out about Matthew? His sermon on the Mount, on the Mount right? And Luke, of course, is famous for his parables, and you can think of some. The prodigal son, son yeah, and the good Samaritan. Samaritan, right? So those are peculiar to Luke. And these additions, by the way, are not merely cosmetic. They have their own narratival integrity. So, for example, if you look at what Matthew does, and uh, you know this actually represents the Gospel of Matthew, and I'm sure you do this at night, don't you, just for entertainment? I've done it again, press this thing. Uh, you'll notice that you have a series of five uh, blocks of teaching in Matthew. I've not put those in. But the first and the last are about blessings and curses. So this is Matthew 5 through 7. I'm going to touch this. And then down here, uh, Matthew 23 to 25. So these blocks of teaching that Matthew has introduced, but they're not willy-nilly. There's a structural integrity to them. And of course, blessings and curses. Where have you seen those before? Deuteronomy, right? So the fact that this then kind of turns around the central speech, which has to do with parables, 
and that's particularly to do with your response to Jesus, what do you think Matthew's trying to tell you? He's taken this whole idea of blessings and curses based on the Torah, but what's the turning point in Matthew's gospel? It's about how you respond to Jesus. So the blessings and curses now have to do with what? Not Torah, but actually what Jesus is doing. Right, so my point here is simply recognize there's some serious structural integrity, not only to the fact that Matthew and Mark and Luke follow the same pattern, but when Matthew adds something, he's really thinking carefully about what he does. This is not accidental. And remember, that's our question. Can we actually learn something about God, substantial about God, from the narrative structure of the Gospels? So that's Matthew. What about Luke? Well, uh, one of the great things about Luke is... Uh, you can't quite see this, but this is Mark running down the middle. And just in behind here, Mark has two chapters. I didn't touch you. Damn spot. Be gone. You need some more Pentecostals. This will spook Ian out. It'll just go. Right, so I'm not going to get too close to this. In fact, can I just stand behind you? So Mark has two chapters of a journey section. Luke takes that and expands it about 450% to almost nine chapters. And it's amazing. It's, some of you have kids, you've taken long journeys, and what's the constant inquiry from behind? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And you kind of wonder as you're reading through Luke, are we ever going to get to Jerusalem? But what's interesting is those two parables that you picked up on, these unique parables to Luke, are all found in this travel section. Now, what's going on there? Well, the Good Samaritan, the Prodigal Son, those, they're actually telling you about the kind of people who get to go with Jesus on this journey. So in, in Mark, it's just two chapters, and one of the key ideas is, you know, it's how you treat the least. And I think Luke gets that and says, we need to tell you who the least are, and you get this massive collection of parables that really open your horizons as to who these least are who are going to make it into the kingdom. Right. So... Won't spend too much time on that, but it's to do with the astonishing breadth and the graceful call of Jesus, where all kinds of people can be a part of this community. Now, most scholars are agreed that the best explanation of these phenomena, that you've got this common order, common structure, and the addition of these materials, is that Matthew and Luke both worked from Mark. So Mark's the first, and then Matthew and Luke borrow from them. Now, that raises a really interesting question. What do you know about Matthew? Well, I'm fairly traditional on this, which might surprise some of you. Uh, I think Matthew actually goes back to Levi. Right? And he's reputed in the early church uh, as having made his own collection of Aramaic sayings. And I think because he works as a tax collector, he probably knows how to take shorthand. And I wouldn't be surprised if he's taken shorthand accounts on wax tablets of some of the things that Jesus said. Right, and you're getting that in this tradition that Matthew had an Aramaic collection of sayings. But why would Matthew, a disciple of Jesus, follow Mark, who was not? It's a bit weird, isn't it? You would have thought that Matthew, having known Jesus, uh, would be the one who stands at the centre, not Matthew. Uh, sorry, not Mark. And a uh, little comment about this. There's lots of questions about the authority of Scripture and tradition. And I've read a number of books on this, but the interesting thing is they're all jolly Marcionites. So they just don't seem to keep in mind what's going on in Israel's narrative. So what begins Israel's scriptures? It's the Torah, 
And from whom traditionally does the Torah come? Right? What gives Moses his status as the grocer fromage, right? The big cheese. What kind of puts him there? It's the fact that Yahweh spoke with him face to face as with a friend and he did that publicly so that Israel would know. That's what distinguishes the prophets. They've stood in the council of Yahweh. They've heard him speak. The wisdom literature kind of flows out of that. So what do you think's going on if you have a high view of Jesus when Jesus chooses 12 disciples to be with him and then he will send them out? And that language is the same word that's used of the prophets. What's going on there? Well, the same thing you saw with Moses and the prophets. If Jesus is Yahweh among us, then he calls the 12 to be with him and he does what? He speaks face to face with them as friends. And John really picks that up. I no longer call you servants but friends. And I think that's why John then goes on to say in that last extended series of uh, discourses that have to do with Jesus' Last Supper, right, it's after Judas is gone that Jesus promises them that the Spirit will lead him into all truth, reminding them of things he said. Now, this is a bit radical. I don't believe that's a promise to the church. That's not a promise to the church councils. That's not a promise to us at our universities. We try to sort this stuff out because we weren't there to remember anything. This is the people who were there to remember. And I think this is John's way of saying that Jesus actually, through the Spirit, tells you you can trust what comes from these guys. And you need to get that because when you're reading the stories of the Gospels, they don't seem to understand what's happening. So I think it's John's way of just letting us know that actually these documents are authoritative, which makes this even more problematic because Mark wasn't with Jesus. What do you do with all of that? Well, I think the simple answer is this. Behind Mark stands Peter. Peter, Now, that might strike you as terribly conservative. I just think it makes the best sense. And I think there are several good reasons for going in this direction. Now, the first thing is to say a bit about Mark. Uh, Mark's gospel is formally anonymous, but it's difficult to believe that anyone in the ancient world would have bought a document without knowing who its author was. That's one thing. Secondly, these things are not outrageously expensive, but they're not as cheap as they are today. And actually, uh, it's interesting, in in a lot of biblical scholarship, they talk about all these documents are extremely expensive. I've never seen one article that actually deals with what the costs were. And uh, in digging around the place, I found there are two references in uh, Marshall to the cost of two versions of his poems, collections of his poems, in Rome, which is ideal. Because you've got stuff coming from Egypt. It's got to make its way across the Mediterranean. It's in the high-cost region of Rome. You've got a pretty good idea of how much it costs per line. And you can work out what the basic cost of a gospel or the book of Isaiah might be. And it's not something you're going to buy every single day, but it's well within the range of somebody who's kind of a middle-upper class, which Rodney Stark argues are the people who really constituted the driving force of the early church. So that's just something to take home. If you want, you didn't have to pay for that. That's just for free. (laughs) So the point of all of this, though, is the people who are likely to buy Mark, if they're doing that, they're already literate people, which means they probably already have some kind of library. And once you have more than one book in your library, you've got to find a quick way to distinguish them. And the way you do it is you attach a tag. And the argument, then, that I want to make is from the very beginning, tags physically associating Mark's name with his gospel were there at the outset. Okay? So I don't think we have too much trouble in, in wondering you know, 
who actually wrote this stuff, they know it is, it's Mark. Now we might want to ask who Mark is, and that's the next question. Why only Mark? And that's another oddity. As many people point out, Mark is one of the most common given names in the empire. The other thing is, too, those kinds of names are really only used by intimates. Right? In the family, people who knew you, so often you have <coughs> at least two other names attached. So we might expect Marcus, Antonius, Levianus, or something or other. But we don't get that. Why do we only get Mark? Well, the suggestion is, you use Mark because he's writing to intimates and to his family, and you go, well, of course, because what does Paul do? when he's writing to the early Christian communities. What does he call them? Brothers and sisters. Now, I come from a Pentecostal tradition where we used to use that language and it got so tight it became a cliche. But I think it really needs to be revived because we really are this new family. We are brothers and sisters and you don't do the dirty on your brother. You don't take advantage of your sister. It's really wonderful language. I'd love to see it brought back in and used intentionally that we are this new family, and you know, Edwin judges talk about this, we're talking about families, not cities. So yes, Jerusalem is a city, but its fundamental structure is the family, not the state. So it's quite profound what's going on here. Well, if you are dealing with a new family, it makes perfect sense to me when you consider that you probably only have about 6,500 Christians by the time Mark is writing. Few of those people could write, so maybe 10% were literate. Fewer of those could actually write something, even less would have the community standing to do so and the wherewithal to produce this kind of work. So just like in Paul's letters, Paul is all you need to know because everyone knows which Paul you're talking about, I think the same applies to Mark. Everyone knows which Mark wrote this gospel. Now, if you've done some biblical studies, you'll know that um, probably our earliest evidence as to Mark's identity comes from Papias, early 2nd century. And he's recording the claim of John the Elder from 90 AD. And the claim is that Peter, Mark was Peter's younger associate who accurately recorded all of Peter's various teachings about Jesus and compiled them into a single work. Now, it seems to me we really have no reason to doubt this. And the one figure, the only New Testament figure that really fits the bill is a chap called John Mark. Right? And... Uh, so well known, again, all you need is the name Mark. He's a bilingual Hellenist. So John is his Jewish name. Mark is his Hellenistic name. Uh, when I was growing up, I was taught that, you know, Saul before he became a Christian, Paul afterwards. Nice try, no cigar, next contestant, please. Saul's his Jewish name, and Paulos is the name he uses in the Hellenistic world. Right? The same thing with John Mark. Now, he's a relative of the wealthy Cyprian landowner Barnabas. And what do you know about Barnabas? Well, we know he has land to sell, so he's got a few shekels. We can also see that John Mark's family uh, has a sizable house in Jerusalem. It's got to be sizable because the church meets there. And you don't have a sizable house without a few shekels. It's the first port of call when Peter escapes from prison. So we can see then that you've got this Mark's in this influential family who has a significant role not only in Jerusalem but also in Antioch. Antioch, that's where Barnabas ends up going. Do you see how family-related this is? This is a very close-knit network. Uh, most of the heresies don't occur until the 2nd century, when the networks just get so big and they're expanding so quickly that all the strange stuff begins to emerge. But I don't think you have a lot of diversity like Bart Ehrman suggests in the 1st century. That just doesn't make 
uh, any sense sociologically to me. So this John Mark, what do we know about him? Well, when Peter is writing from Rome, he describes Mark as my son. There's a special relationship there. And we also know that uh, Mark joined Uncle Barney right, and Paul on their first missionary journey. Didn't work out quite so well. But we do know at the end, in 2 Timothy, when Paul's in Rome, he asked for Mark to come to him. So there's been some kind of reconciliation there. Whether that happened with Barnabas or not is another matter we don't know. But all of this to say with these kinds of connections that Mark is really well placed to write a story of Jesus. Unlike Peter, he's bilingual. Now, Peter's probably picked up some Greek along the way. He would have had to have that. But here's Mark. He probably gets his, the great bulk of his eyewitness material directly from Peter. And then the story of the empty tomb, he probably gets from his mother's female friends who were there and saw this. And then perhaps some of Mark's insights come from his relationship with Paul. He's bringing all of this together. And that's what you get in the gospel. So actually... When you're reading Mark, you're getting Peter. I've still got this question in mind. Why would Matthew follow Mark? And why Peter? Because he's not actually following Mark, but Peter. Why Peter? Because of Peter's priority. You have a look at the list, uh, ever look at the list of the disciples? Peter's always first. And even with the inner three, Peter, James and John, it's always Peter. First one there. And it's interesting that it's only Matthew who actually records Jesus' statement to Peter about his priority upon this rock I'll build my church. And of course, since we all know that it's not the Eucharist, but the Spirit that constitutes the church, what do you know about Peter? He's there at the day of Pentecost, and he's the first one to witness the Spirit coming upon Cornelius. Because as you know in the New Testament, it's the Spirit that's the mark of the people of God. That's what everyone's waiting for. Uh, it's part of the reason Paul becomes a believer, not because of his sins. He meets the resurrected Jesus. And if you read the first account of what Ananias does, Ananias says, receive the Spirit, and Paul's eyes are opened. So you need to understand that about Paul. Why he ends up becoming a follower of Jesus is because Jesus is the one through whom the resurrection comes. I think he also sees him as God, but he's also the one through whom the Spirit comes. Resurrection and Spirit, the great hope of the Jewish prophets, for the eschaton. So then, it's Peter's priority that actually stands behind Mark and is, is the reason why Matthew follows Mark's outline. Well, that brings us, I think, to what's going to be the, the central concern of this, uh, this essay, or closer to it. What are we to make of Mark's narrative structure? And some of you who were here, what, two summers ago, would have heard some of this. I'm not going to go through it. Um, I'll just make a claim here. But once regarded as a fairly straightforward and unpolished account, more and more now people are realising that Mark is a very sophisticated piece of literature. Now, don't make the mistake of thinking that just because someone doesn't speak the emperor's Greek, he doesn't know what he's doing. That would be a really silly thing to do. Uh, I've sat with farmers in the Wimmer and travelled on their tractors, and they don't actually speak the king's English, but they are as clever as all get out, right? And one of the problems in our education system is we think, well, if people speak well, they're clever. Uh, not necessarily, actually. And the opposite applies, right? So, also applies. Well, I argued some 25 years ago that uh, Mark's gospel was based around this Isianic pattern 
of uh, this new exodus from exile. And I'll just explain quickly why I think that still works. Don't forget in Israel's scriptures that it begins with Torah. And there's a reason for that, and it's not Genesis. The reason it begins with Torah is because of the revelation of Yahweh. Abraham didn't have that. That's what they're going to get. And that's what's revealed during the Exodus, and in particular, the character of this Yahweh. Because of the critical things in the Exodus, right? How do we learn who Yahweh is? You learn that from what goes on at the Exodus event, and that's why the Torah is so central to Israel's collection of scriptures. So I would actually argue very strongly that the revelation that's going on in Israel's scriptures is to do with the character of Yahweh, which includes his power and his wisdom. All of that stuff's tied up in who is this God who actually made the world? And I'd simply say, coming out of that, folks, that our character and our wisdom are some of the most powerful apologetics for the gospel. And when we blow that, when Christians behave badly and run around like chickens with their heads cut off, it doesn't do Jesus any honour. That's not what Yahweh's on about. So this happens at the Exodus. And what's the Exodus characterised by? First of all, Yahweh's coming. The coming of Yahweh. Then the performance of mighty deeds. Then a journey. And finally, arrival in the promised land, ultimately Jerusalem. Now, about six, seven hundred years later, they're in a similar situation, but now in Babylon. What do you think the prophet Isaiah is going to do when he wants to talk to them about God's bringing them out of bondage? Anzac Day? (laughs) Bastille Day? No. He's going to pick up on the pattern they know. And that's going to be one of the critical things in this presentation, is if Yahweh is personal, you know him through narrative. That's how you know people. You know them through their story. Because for Israel, the truth is personal. And we'll come back to that a little bit later on, but that's what's going on here. So I would argue that you see the same thing. It's not just me. A number of Isaiah scholars recognize this. You have the coming of Yahweh that come, begins in chapter 40. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Make straight in the desert the way for our God. Yahweh returns. He's coming like a warrior. Mighty deeds. He's going to lead his blind people along a path they do not know. Just like Israel in the Exodus. Uncomprehending. Grumbling. Not seeing what's happening. Same things going on here. Finally back to Jerusalem. One of the things that's interesting about this though is Isaiah introduces a novel development, namely that of this servant, this enigmatic servant that no one really knows what to do with. And somehow his suffering and death is going to facilitate this process of getting Israel back into the land so that Jerusalem, (coughs) so that Jerusalem, once full of bloodshed and murder, will become the city of the great king and a source of light and life to which all the nations will be drawn. That's what I'd argue Isaiah is on about. It's an amazing book. Well, I want to suggest that's what we find in Mark. He begins with Isaiah's promise. That's just to tell you, please don't go to Deuteronomy. Uh, No, don't go to Daniel. I'm telling you where you go. Oh, that's very good. No, no, no. A little bit further. Move on. Yes, yes. Okay, finally arrived in Isaiah because we'll go everywhere else, right? He's telling you where to go. Start with Isaiah. And when you've got that in mind, what do you see? Jesus' mighty deeds of deliverance, a journey, and then arrival. And I just think that makes perfect sense of Israel's narrative understanding of the way God reveals himself. And of course, running all the way, running all the way along through here are these references to this enigmatic servant. Okay, 
So if this is what's happening, uh, let me just make one other comment here. It's in my notes before I forget it. Mark's heavy reliance on Isaiah is entirely consistent with reconstructions of first century triennial Jewish synagogue readings. It sounds like a disease, doesn't it? Sorry, a lot of, a lot of language there. Uh, what they're basically saying is, and they're reconstructions, they're attempts to try and see what was going on when Jewish people read through the Torah every three years. That's a bit speculative. But alongside the Torah, they'd have Haftarah readings. And these are readings from the prophets. Now, the prophets in Israel's Bible go from where? Joshua all the way through to Malachi. That is a truckload of stuff. Right? I mean, it's an enormous body of material. When you look at the Haftarah readings, two-thirds come from Isaiah. What's that telling you? It's telling you that when, Jesus, when the people in Jesus' day read the Torah, their most helpful hermeneutical lens as it applied to their future was Isaiah. And of those two-thirds that were Isaiah, two-thirds of that was made up of chapters 40 through 66. Now, that's a stunning observation. I was speaking at uh, SBL, that's the Society of Biblical Literature, kind of a big zoo for crazy Bible people. It happens internationally. Uh, we were at the Mark Seminar, and there are a couple of younger scholars who are trying to make some sense of stuff in Mark and trying to talk about who Jesus was. Not one of the three papers mentioned Isaiah, in spite of the fact that Mark begins with it. It just shows you how out of touch we are with the mindset of first century Israel. And I, I said to them, you know, guys, look, I'm not trying to be unkind here, but I don't know a single New Testament scholar who could give you a 20 to 25 minute reasonable account of the book of Isaiah, not one. How in the world are we expected to get who Jesus is when we just don't even think in these terms? Process system redesign can affect the mindset, affect mindset and behaviour change. What if we've been operating with the wrong system? So that's a little coffee moment. That's where we're heading. So get ready. It's going to get a lot worse than that. Uh, no, a lot more exciting. A lot more exciting. Okay. Well, uh, the question is, who first thought of telling the story of Jesus in these terms? Well, um, most of my colleagues think it was probably Mark. But really? I mean, if Mark was the first one to think of this, that would probably make him one of the just forefront of the theolo theological you know, thinkers of the first century. He'd have to be right up there. <coughs> but do you hear that about Mark? No. And when you put it like that, if it's Mark who thinks like this, what in the world was Peter doing when he's preaching the gospel for 20 years? So Peter, how does it all fit together with a, oh, I don't know, ask Mark, 20 years from he'll tell you. Like, really? And the moment you put it that way, you realise how quickly, even in Christians' minds, Jesus gets marginalised. I have to keep saying this to my students. My great worry about you at Regent is you'll come out knowing more about exegesis, more about Augustine, and you'll hardly know anything about the Jesus whom you claim to follow, and that would be a terrible, terrible tragedy because he stands at the centre of all of this. Jesus gets left out. But can you imagine Jesus preaching 
for three years and thinking, gee, I don't know, how does this all come? Oh, I don't know, I'm just going to heal the sea there. And I'm going, and I'll just walk on the water. And, really, do you think? I mean, out of those three, who's the clever bunny? Not to be irreverent, right? But who's the clever bunny out of... I mean, surely Jesus towers over all these guys as they would be the first to admit in terms of sheer genius and insight. Right? And I don't think... Have you ever thought of Jesus as a genius? Anyone can write an unintelligible book. I didn't got a PhD for it. <laughs> Anyone can do that. But to tell something in 30 or 40 words or less that nails with profound insight a particular problem, that takes true genius. So, yeah, I think Jesus was a very, very clever guy. Clever enough to know if you want to change the world, you talk in language common people can understand. Clever enough to get that. And sometimes I think we've forgotten that. Uh, please forgive me. I'm really going to get into trouble saying this. That just might be one of the reasons why Hillsong is leaving so many other churches in its dust. Mm. Right? Because it doesn't mind speaking to common people. And we'd rather be speaking to the elite because that's who we are. <laughs> does, that, does that mean he, that uh, Jesus is, is being marginalised by Christian scholarship and for the same reason Isaiah, Isaiah has been marginalised? Yeah, I, I think what happens is actually Jesus does get marginalised. If I think about it, even the Christians I talk to, right, they love all this other stuff, but they, do they actually know who Jesus is and what he's doing? And I think it happens across the whole range of stuff. And it really worries me. I say to my students, I just wish you would fall in love with Jesus. And I don't mean that in a trivial sense. Right? But I don't think they do because they're much as, far more interested in learning about other things than getting a sense of what Jesus is on about, personally. So I, I tell them in my class, New Testament Foundations, I have an agenda. I want you to fall in love with Jesus. And I, at this little moment here, but uh, we had a, an emeritus professor from uh, the University of British Columbia. And she was sitting in the front row, um, highly respected. And it's just one of the wonderful moments to watch tears running down her face regularly in class. And she said to me after, you know, I've, I've just seen Jesus all over again. Right? And they've just found, her, found him so captivating. So anyway, that's a little kind of rabbit trail among many that I'm running through. Uh, I should probably stop here. Well, I think actually, yeah, this really comes from Jesus. That is the structure of Mark's gospel that he gets from Peter comes from Jesus himself. And that's what Matthew's doing and that's what Luke's doing. Right? Now, I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. But... Uh, What do we do then with the Gospel of John? Because that looks so different. How do we make sense of what's going on here? And as you know, John does look very different. I'll never forget the first time when I discovered that John had the temple cleansing at the beginning. I thought it was the end of the world. Right? Uh, one of them has to be telling porkies, right? So who do I go with? Um, <laughs> That's a technical term for playing fast and loose with the truth. Porky. I'm going to write that one down. Uh, there's no voice from heaven at John's baptism. There's no transfiguration. How could you possibly drop that? The synoptics talk a great deal about the kingdom of God. John just twice from then after eternal life. What does Jesus do most of the time in synoptics? Casting out demons. Not one mentioned in John's gospel. Synoptics are full of parables. Short aphorisms in John, long, symbol-laden, complex interactions. 
In the synoptics, Jesus spends most of his time in Galilee, in John, it's in Judea. And there's not just one visit, there's multiple visits. And they're all focused around a selection of Jewish feasts. So what in the world do we do with this? Well, a couple of things. Uh, the first thing to be noticed is, even though people for a long time thought John was a Hellenistic or spiritual gospel, people are now widely recognising that John is as thoroughly Jewish and as grounded in Israel's historical narrative as the synoptics. So John's really good. He picks up on these universal ideas like logos, light, darkness, above, below, water, wine, all of that, and then grounds them specifically in Israel's narrative. And I think that's a deliberate choice. It's his way of saying, yep, you're aware of this stuff. You'll have no idea what it means until you lock it into the story of Israel. I think that's John's version in Ephesus of what Paul does on Mars Hill in Athens. Right, so when Paul's on Mars Hill in Athens, I don't think he's saying to the Greeks, I'm proclaiming to you the God that you actually worship but don't realise you're worshipping. I don't think he's saying that. I think he's saying to them, you see that altar to the unknown God? You're bang on the money. You do not know. You're ignorant. You're in the wrong narrative and you won't know this God until you change into the story that begins with one man, Adam, and then tracks through finally to Jesus. Now, Kevin Rowe argues this and he comes out punching. He says, from Justin Martyr all the way to Aquinas, they've misunderstood the point of what's going on on Mars Hill. There is no marriage between Athens and Jerusalem because Jerusalem is intent on overturning the ancient world and bringing life and that can't happen until you get rid of these massive structures and they're all tied up together you start pulling at one part of the tapestry and the whole lot's going to come undone which is why people react with such anger they don't fully get what's happening but they can sense something massively is about to shift so one of the reasons I'm not quite so enthusiastic about the fathers is I think they probably held back modernity by a thousand years. And that worries me when you think about all of the women who died in childbirth. That's a really serious issue for me. All the people who died of starvation because we weren't capable of having more efficient farming. Now I'm really happy to have that discussion with you, uh, but I'm really... Happy to press that, but that's not our topic tonight. That's just a little thing to keep me going. So, uh, so, okay, that's the first thing. Thoroughly grand in Israel's narrative. Second thing, okay, so you're in the street, you're at the supermarket, right, and you're kind of fiddling around looking for some kind of cheese, and you get chatting to some bloke and introduce yourself. Hi, you know, my name's Rick. Who are you? Oh, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. Oh, and the rest is, no, not so much. Right? Um, what's going on with this language? Well, uh, and this is hot off the press because I ran this past Edwin of, of Blessed Standing this, this morning, actually. Uh, there's some evidence that in the ancient world, teachers would appoint one of their disciples, right, not just to relate what they did, but to interpret it for a new contextual setting. And I think that's what beloved disciple means. The first time you get it is in chapter 13 where John expands what is one or two paragraphs in the synoptics into what, five chapters or more of the Last Supper talks? And what's the beloved disciple doing? He's got his head on Jesus, kolpos. The only other place that word occurs is right back in the prologue where we're told... Put it over here. 
<laughs> where we're told that Jesus you get can... up and watch the sun rise at half past five. <laughs> I did actually. <laughs> I'm in serious trouble now. <laughs> I'm a bit sparky tonight, and you just have to, you know. I'll just get you to repeat it all to me tomorrow. Thank you. I will do that. Bless you. Um, the only other place you find that word is in the prologue where it says Jesus comes from the colpos of the Father and he's the one who's exegeted him. Now there's some very careful thought about how that's arranged and I think what John's telling you is not throw out Mark or Matthew but he's going to tell you some things about Jesus that they could not. They're not permitted to do the kind of interpretation John is. That's his calling. I think what he does is he goes to Ephesus and spends decades marinating in that culture capital of, of the cultural kind of the cultural center of the ancient world in many ways and he then engages with that world telling the story of Jesus right. so what does he do well um, Mark begins with this exodus imagery that's what Isaiah's new exodus John just reminds people that the exodus is actually connected with God as creator now if you know the book of Isaiah those two themes are really connected and if you understand the exodus it's actually a mini creation but John makes this really clear for people who might not get it. In the beginning, that's the Creator, came and tabernacled among us, glory, grace and truth. That's the Exodus, right? So he's being really clear about this. In Greek, to a Gentile world, right? you know what he's saying, don't you? Salvation comes from the Jews. If you want to know the one God who can save you, this is the narrative into which you must embed yourself. <coughs> and why would they say that? Because that's the only way you get to know Yahweh, through this narrative. Okay? So... Uh, if you know Israel's scriptures, you can see immediately that Mark has a high Christology. People have had debates about that, but uh, begging pardon, but that my thesis basically argued if you paid attention to the text that Mark begins with, the opening texts of Mark have nothing to do with the Messiah, everything to do with the coming of Yahweh himself. There's a high Christology running all the way through Mark. We missed it because we don't know our Bibles. And so where do the early church fathers have their debates about Christology? Yes. Oh, thank you. High Christology. Yep, sorry. Um, the Jesus is actually Yahweh, not just... Thank you so much. Sorry. Uh, see? I know she's going to get me back here. It's really good. Um, keeps me on my toes. Yeah, high Christology is Jesus is actually God among us, right? Yahweh among us, not simply a Messiah or something like that. So um, that's going on in Mark, if you can see it, and people now are. Uh, it, it's astonishing, actually. It's only in the last 50 years that we as Christians have taken seriously that Jesus was a first century Jew. Mostly what we said is, well, actually, he's really a Greek philosopher in disguise with Jewish body odour. That, that's kind of all we've done with it, right? right? That's been the extent of it. We've not taken seriously that Jesus' mindset really does come out of this Jewish world. And we translate into something else. So John really nails that. Jesus is the I am. He really hammers that. But well, you know that when he tells the sea what to do in Mark. If he can forgive sins, of course he's the I am. John's not going any, you know, he's just making it clearer to people who might not have picked that up. And it's not just that. Uh, toward the end of Mark, there's an interesting saying um, where the stone the builders rejected will become the cornerstone. And that, I think, is pointing to the fact that Jesus will be the new temple. And John just expands that and makes that really clear. So this is why we don't really care about building a temple in Jerusalem, because Jesus' death has made us the temple. Uh, in Mark, there's the rich guy who comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
Right? Why would he ask Jesus that? Well, because Mark wants to tell you that that's what comes through Jesus. But people wouldn't pick that up unless they understand how that works in Israel's story. So what does John do? Well, he says, yeah, I know about the kingdom of God. So there's old Nicky. He talked about it twice. We got that right. So now we're going to talk about eternal life. That's what this is really about. So John's explaining what kingdom of God really means to these people. And how does it happen? It happens through the Spirit. And this is then expressed through the great feast of Israel. So, uh, any questions about that? Come to me to John. Ready to move on? Okay, so here we go. Right, I'm going to move past these pages. It seems to me then... Uh, yep. Yep. I have to repeat and clarify. Yep. Um, the beloved disciple and the key interpreter, yep. you pick up on that word uh, that at the last supper, John yep. lined against Jesus' breast. Colpos, yep. And then the same word, uh, the breast was yep. from John 1. Yep. Can you clarify the John Yeah, at the end of prologue, oh, sorry, there's a prologue. Yep. The end of the prologue is, you know, no one has seen the Father but Jesus and he comes from the Father's colpos to make him known. Right, so what I think John's doing is saying that's what the beloved disciple does. He's making Jesus known in a way, not to diminish what Matthew, Mark and Luke say. In fact, he's going to amplify John Mark. Right? He's got other things to do. But he wants you to read his gospel against John Mark and he's going to help you understand some of the stuff that John Mark does. So John Mark has a transfiguration. John drops that to tell you where the real glory happens. It's when Jesus is on the cross, not the resurrection. It's when he's on the cross. That's a profound insight there. And what's that telling us? The glory of our God is he'll let us say no to him. And that's why I'm not a Calvinist predestinarian. And that's why I don't follow Rob Bell, who says love wins. Right? They're both two sides of the one coin. One's stronger, the other's a soft one. But in both instances, God will eventually get to say what you do. And I think John says, no, our God is amazing. He'll let you say no to him if you want to. And that's already in the story of that ruler who wants eternal life and he walks away and Jesus lets him go. Can you imagine any emperor or any god in the ancient world allowing you to do this? That's, that's the astonishing element of our God. So is that okay? So then I think um, he's amplifying John Mark and then the question then emerges, seems to me, uh, just like we asked of Mark and Peter, where did John get these ideas from? I think it is actually John, the, the disciple. Where does he get the idea to talk about the feasts? Well, if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke carefully, you notice that Jesus regularly, deliberately heals on the Sabbath. Come on, mate. Do it the next day. People won't get upset. <laughs> but he just constantly, oh, what time is it? Oh, Sabbath. And people are flipping out all over the place. And there's a reason for that. Because he's telling you he's the one who brings the rest that Sabbath remembered and anticipates. And then when he goes into Jerusalem, it's deliberately modeled on the Feast of Dedication. And he chooses to die on Passover. He plans this. What kind of person says, I have to die on Passover? But he does this. So the answer for me is, is that uh, the structure of John's gospel comes from Jesus itself. So we're going to talk about the implications of this and then we're done. But here's what I want to suggest at this point. This evidence and argument suggests that the structure of Mark's gospel and the structure of John's gospel come from Jesus himself. Now, 
how does this matter? Well, four <coughs> critical concerns. First of all, reading the Gospels. Probably the most obvious thing to notice here is that these structures are not just literary, there's a profound biblical theological element to them. Now, most readers have known that when you're reading you know, a, a lengthy book, you want to think about the structure. We've mostly got that, right? But this is not just literary. There's a biblical theological element to this. So think about the transfiguration. Now, remember Mark's narrative? You've got these mighty deeds, then they're on the way, right? And who else was on the way and suddenly came to a mountain? And on this mountain, there was a cloud, there's glory, Moses and Elijah are there, and someone's blithering on about tabernacles. And then finally, a voice speaks from the cloud. Where have you seen that before? Sinai, right? Now, can you see the hermeneutic here? They're doing narrative hermeneutics or historical hermeneutics. Why would you do that? Because God is a person and you know persons through the narrative. Now, in the Hellenistic world, you don't get truth from narratives. Because narratives are about change. And if it changes, it can't be true. Right? And if it's not true, it's not real. You're just not going to think that way. That's why when you read Plato and Aristotle, they're not telling narratives. Right? These are disembodied kind of rationalist systems or whatever. It's that coherence. They're not going to history or narrative for the ultimate truth. Their cosmology, their way of understanding the world, wouldn't even suggest they go that way. doesn't mean they don't write about history. They do. But that's not where you get real truth from. Now, um, do you think that maybe Christians have been a bit affected by this? <laughs> maybe? something to think about okay so you've recognized at Sinai well done you brilliant first step so I keep saying to my students you know the hermeneutic where have you seen this before so they get it it's Sinai now second step is you look for the differences because that's where the zingers really happen what do you know about Sinai first thing that happens is the cloud descends thunder and lightning all this kind of stuff right a few people go up the mountain they're up there for a very long time Moses comes down, his face is shining, and he has a truckload of stuff to tell you. Most of which has to do with the temple and ritual purity, actually. We tend to miss that because we don't really care about that stuff. So it kind of shrinks to the size of a, a, size of a mustard seed in our thinking, and we all focus on the Ten Commandments. But actually, there's a whole load of stuff that you go through. Now, watch what happens in the Mark narrative. They go up the mountain... And long before the cloud turns up, what's Jesus doing? Shining like all get out. And there's a Greek word for that, but I don't know what it is. <laughs> now, what's that telling you about who Jesus is? Well, some Jewish background will help you. There's a Jewish document. There are three times when Yahweh wore white and outshone all of creation. One, when he made the world. Two, when he married Israel and gave Israel Torah, three, when he brought them out of exile. What do you think Jesus is doing in this way section in Mark? The beginning of a new creation. The formation of a new people as he gives them Torah and the restoration of Israel from exile. That's what's going on in this way section. And we can spend a bit more time on it if you like, but you know that way section is punctuated by three passion predictions. This is the way it's going to happen. And then, of course... Finally, um, Moses, and I shouldn't say finally, Moses and Elijah are there talking to Jesus. And Mark uses a Greek word he only uses once. 
And that word occurs only once in the Exodus, and it's when Moses speaks to God face to face as with a friend. And Mark says, here are Moses and Elijah talking to Jesus. He's telling you who Jesus is. And uh, Peter wants to say, okay, let's build tabernacles. Right? It's kind of an embarrassing moment. And you know, Peter probably chuckles about that looking back in years gone past. Kind of the meltdown on Mount Sinai, the Mount of Transfiguration or something. Uh, but you don't need a tabernacle, do you? Because when God speaks, you don't get all these volumes. You get five words in Aramaic. This is my beloved son, listen to him. And none of that includes tabernacle instructions. Why you don't need them? Because as John will later say, Jesus was God tabernacle among us. And the new Torah is about cross-bearing. Right? That's what Jesus has talked about. And from then on, from Sinai to the end, did he get to Jerusalem? Guess what it's all about? No arguments over greatness. It's not about how I'm received. It's how you receive the least. Right? Those are the big things. It's not about this person's not part of our group, therefore we exclude them. You don't do that. And now you understand what Luke does. He gets that and then shows people exactly what that means by expanding this into all these extra chapters. Okay. What is that cross-bearing? I've never heard anyone say anything about that that makes any sense to me. Cross-bearing discipleship? Yeah, what is yeah. it? What okay, is it? Um, yeah, it's basically, well, you know what Rome's about, right? Who uses crosses? Yeah. Rome does. Torture. And that's what Rome does to runaway slaves and insurrectionists. So right? they preserve their yeah. power. And it's the sign of the most ignoble, de ignoble death. And what Jesus is basically saying is to follow me but you have to forget about trying to be a great one. If this is about your own empire, trying to be a great one, forget it. You can't do that and be someone who follows me. Because if I'm trying to be a great one, I'm worried about how I'm received, not how you're received. I'm not concerned so much about the least. I want to do my own thing. Have I gone on too long here? Should I? When am I meant to finish? Oh, I'm very, very sorry. Apologies. Okay. Have a great trip. Thank you. Um, sorry, I always get into trouble not watching my watch. Anyway. So that's what I think is going on in Mark, right? Uh, what about in Luke? Well, we've talked about this, haven't we? Uh, well, there's already this idea of um, Luke's unique use of parables, and uh, his and uh, was it Macassi, Charlie Macassi, the prodigal son? So the outsiders, the sinners, women and Gentiles are all part of this. But there's something else going on in Luke as well. And you know, if you read Luke's prologue, the first two chapters, it's very similar to the Greek of the Septuagint. Why does he do that? Most scholars say, well, he's simply picking up on the story of Israel in the Septuagint. But there's a Greek scholar by the name of Giuseppe Veltri just recently wrote a book called Books and Libraries in the Ancient World. And he argues that actually the translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek was not simply because many Jewish people no longer spoke Hebrew. He claims it was an act of cultural resistance. Alexander's moving east. He's after one new humanity. He has a canon of texts. He builds model cities. There's a counter-narrative. A one new humanity, not around Hellenism, but around Yahweh. There's another canon of texts, and there's another new city called Jerusalem. So that actually the Septuagint is a direct repudiation of the Hellenistic agenda that there's another narrative. And I think that's what Luke's doing. Luke, associate of Paul, Paul the preacher, across Asia Minor into Europe. Luke begins with an appeal to Septuagint because this is entirely to overthrow Plato's Republic. 
in this new community, everyone gets accepted. It's a new dynamic city. And I think we see this in Galatians 2, in the book of Galatians, T-double-O, uh, where Paul talks about in Christ there's no longer male nor female, slave nor free. And I think actually that goes all the way back to when Moses confronts Pharaoh, Pharaoh who thinks that he alone is the son of Amon-Re, this elite male at the top of everything. And what does Moses say? Yahweh says, Israel is my firstborn son. That means not just the men, but the women now are elevated to the primary place of inheritance. That means the handmaidens, the male and female servants, whatever your wealth happens to be. This is a stunning moment. A whole nation actually now gets elevated to this place of being regarded as having the same rights as a firstborn son. And I think you begin to see that and say with Joel, when you start talking about the spirit, I'll pour my spirit upon all flesh. Then you get the list of the people who'll be involved in this. It's this incredible undermining of the ancient world's hierarchy. And Luke deliberately builds into that by echoing the Septuagint. And then when he picks up on Mark's little section about treating the least well, he tells you who the least are. All these people we think have no place. He says, actually, they're all part of this great people of God. Well, um, then Matthew. Uh, we've already talked about Matthew's blessings and curses, kind of picking up on Deuteronomy. But that's not the only time Matthew has kind of this idea of teaching. Uh, how does Matthew begin? Chapter 5, Jesus goes up a mountain and starts teaching. Where have you seen that before? Yes, 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 right? But you recognize what this is? Sinai, that's the first bit. What's the second bit? Now we're looking for, we've got the similarities. Now we're looking for the differences. So you go back and read the story. And on this mountain, there's a fence around the bottom. And there are warnings. No making whoopee for three days. Make sure your clothes are all washed, right? And a handful of people go up the mountain. Most of the rest don't. And the, you know, threats and all that kind of stuff. But on this mountain, there's no fence around the bottom. Anyone can go up. And what's more, you get to look on the face of God in Jesus and you do not die. And the first words you hear are not threats and warnings, but is there anybody here who knows they simply do not have the spiritual resources to do this? Congratulations, this is for you. Now that's just, you start putting Israel's backstory behind this, this becomes phenomenal, and this is how that gospel opens. Yeah. Um, there's that really weird section in Exodus, which often gets skipped over in Exodus yeah. 24, okay. where the elders go up the mountain yeah, yeah. and they sit in the presence. And God does not break out against them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and yeah. they see, they actually yeah. see him. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Do you see any anything there in that sort of democratisation? Oh, yeah. I mean, who does Jesus eat with in the Gospels? Tax collectors and sinners. That's you bunch, right? right? You're all in this too, right? All of you disreputable crew, right? None of us are decent people to associate with you. No, not really. But we get to eat with him. That's the astonishing thing, right? You get to eat with this Jesus. So, yeah, absolutely. Right? Um, he is, in fact, the presence of God tabernacle among us, and he is with all of us, right? Now, one of the things that comes out of this, of course, is some of you are doing some spirituality stuff and all this journey of ascent. You ever heard that language about spirituality? Where does that come from? That's not from the Bible. The Bible's all about God's descent. You read John's Gospel, it says the Father and the Son are going to come and make their home in you. There's no ascent there. And if you look at the Mount of Transfiguration, who are the three that get to go up? 
well, it's jolly Peter who's just been kind of doing Satan stuff. He gets to go up. So if you think your spiritual elitism are going to get you up the mountain, you haven't read Mark. Right? And then who are the two guys at the end of the narrative who are kind of doing a side run around their mates to try and beat them to the best seats? The other two blokes who are up the mountain. Right? So if you think some kind of spiritual experience on the mountain is going to change your life and solve, think again, it doesn't happen in Mark. Right? And Pentecostals, my tradition, need to hear about this. And that's probably no news to you because we talk a lot about these glory experiences and our character is still as bad as it's always been. <laughs> right? That's not what changes you. What changes you is this cross-bearing discipleship where you follow Jesus and it's not about trying to be great. The big concern is how do I take care of the least? Not my job to go excluding other people because they're not part of my group. Right? As long as they're following Jesus, they're kind of in. Well, finally then to John. Uh, John's amazing. We've already alluded to this. We have one or two ch uh, paragraphs in the synoptics about the Lord's Supper. John just explodes into five or so chapters. But notice what happens. Right? Shock, horror. There's no words of institution. The Eucharist is almost completely marginalised. Except for way back in chapter 6, where there's a series of little narrative things that are going on. So, you know, first of all, Jesus is there, destroy this temple, and in three days, and they go, hang on, mate, 40 years, what are you talking about, right? Of course, they don't get what he's on to. Talking to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you must be born again. What? Get mum? Then the woman of the well, uh, living water, where's your bucket, right? Chapter 6, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, and it's the same ignorant people who say, what? Do we have to eat your flesh and drink your blood? I think already, toward the end of the first century, there are people who are making the mistake of thinking there's something magical about the meal. I think that's why in Ephesians, when you get the list of things that make us one, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, what's missing? No one meal. Now, the only place I've found evidence of people thinking that when you eat, you ingest the God is in the pagan world. That's just not part of Jewish thinking. And it quickly takes on this miraculous kind of feel. And John wants to cut that off at the pass by saying, actually, what this is really all about is foot washing. And you've probably heard this stuff before, but it's a profound moment. No one in the ancient world ever has done anything like this. No one. All the sources we have, no one's ever done anything like this. This really is astonishing. And you understand why Peter says, no way, Jose. This is not going to happen. And it's not because he's proud and arrogant. It's because he loves Jesus. No, Jesus, you can't do this. I mean, you need to sense who you are. And Jesus says, Peter, three years, mate, right? On the road, same bad breath together, right? Sleeping out in the open, right? Walking, all that. We've done all that stuff together. If you won't let me do this, it's over. We're done. That's how serious this is, right? It's the foot washing that sits at the heart of what that meal is about. That's what we're signing up to. But most of the stuff has to do with the indwelling spirit. It's not the Eucharist that makes the church, folks. It's the indwelling spirit. John understands that. It's what the prophets are hoping for. So then, what's pretty clear from this is, and we'll go through the rest of the stuff fairly quickly, is that you can't get Jesus apart from Israel's story. I was in Lisbon recently at a conference, and I heard from a woman who said there's some people in South America who are thinking... Why do we need Israel's story? We've read Acts 17. God has revealed himself to our people. Okay, we can forget Israel's narrative and we can talk about our own religious traditions wherein we can see God. And that's very flattering to our culture. Someone forgot to tell the New Testament authors 
because even though they're writing in Greek, this entire thing is rooted in Israel's narrative. 2,500 references to Israel's scriptures in 1,800 different places and what, a handful of references to Greco-Roman literature? They're telling you something about where this is all coming from. Now, I think what you're going to get here is actually an idea of how to do truly Christian interpretation. And I just want to say two things here. Allegorizing scripture is not a Christian interpretation. Not if you're going to follow Jesus. I know them's fighting words. I spent 30 years looking at how the New Testament uses the Old Testament. Not once do they allegorize. That's what the Neoplatonists and the Stoics do to save Homer. Nowhere do you ever get the impression that Jesus or Paul think that Israel's scriptures need saving. What do you mean by allegorizing again? Allegorizing? As in allegory, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's where, okay, so what they'd be doing is they're reading Homer, yeah. and they know Homer can't be true, because he says some really disreputable things about the gods. So, so actually what Homer's talking about is, oh. and they kind of explain, right? right? So you've heard Augustine do this, right? Do you know the, the Good Samaritan, and of course, you know, Jerusalem... The moon is heaven and Jericho is the moon and you know the donkey is the church or something and Paul's the innkeeper and that kind of thing. You know that, right? Um, that's the kind of allegorizing they do because you're trying to get to this deeper spiritual meaning. But I don't see any of that going on in the New Testament, not when they're reading Israel scriptures. Right? You get a high Christology not because you allegorize, sorry, a view of Jesus as God, not because you allegorize, but because you read these texts on their plain surface. I would argue that every use by the New Testament authors of the Old Testament is done with awareness of the literary context. <laughs> Hello? Has my battery died? No? Has it gone to sleep? Okay, that's it. We're done. Okay. Um, <laughs> at least we're done with that. Let me just finish off this. We're almost there. So I'd say the same thing about typology. You heard about typology? Yeah. You heard that, right? This stuff just goes wild. Justin Martyr gets it and Barnabas and they start pushing it further. Irenaeus gets it, he expands it to this other huge, wonderful thing. And then you've got the Antiochians taking on the Alexandrians, their big debates about how you, you know, origin those guys, like this allegorical reading. And it just gets blown like Nietzsche's moustache out of all reasonable proportion. <laughs> but actually, if you look at how Paul uses typology, so in 1 Corinthians 10, and the following rock was Christ. That's not the type. The type is Israel's rebellion. Adam is a type because he's a moral negative exemplar. That's what biblical typology is about. It's about moral exemplars. The tabernacle is not a type of anything. It might symbolize, but it's not actually strictly a type. So that's the third point. We should let these guys tell us how actually to read Israel's scriptures. Because if they're authoritative in their content, you can't separate their content from how they interpret the Old Testament. Hence, uh, I'm on a bit of a warpath about this. It's time for us to actually start being biblical about how we read the scriptures. But, and that means, yep. The, the, so if you use it like an echo or something, like some of the scholars have, some of the echoes are pretty weird. They are too. Paul yep. says stuff like, an ox grinds this, that, or the other, a worker's worth his wages. It's like, yeah, that's... No, it's creative. fine, that one. It's creative, though. Um, no, no, it's... it's, it's I, I can happily, happily go through that for you, if you like. We'll have a conversation later. Okay. Uh, I wrote an article on this, picking a whole bunch of the ones that people thought were all you know, problematic. And what they'd missed was that it's say, they're all saying something about God's character. Right? 
So when God says, you know, take care of your oxen, he's not just concerned about the oxen, he's concerned about humans, that humans take care of oxen properly. That's the principle. That just because someone's doing heavy labour for an animal is you don't treat them with contempt, which is what happens in the ancient world. And I think that's what Paul's saying. This is not just about oxen. This is a principle of how you treat people who work for you so you take care of you. That's how I would read it. Yes? So you're not saying that um, all of the references say in the the Pentateuch to um, the tabernacle and the image of the tabernacle is not anticipated, Jesus. Uh, Actually, well... We'd have to talk about which ones, but I would generally think not, actually. So when the veil of the temple is rent. Yeah, yeah. That's a cosmological statement, mm-hmm. I would argue, personally. I mean, we can disagree, so I don't no, have to I, agree with me. I could be completely loopy. But this is where I would come from. Well, the temple is a mini-universe, right? right? So Ian probably talked about that, I don't know, but um, the first thing you do when you walk in the bounded thing, you encounter the great waters, right, in the, the basin. Then there's the altar. So this is a sacrificial kind of barbecue fellowship moment that gets you into the holy place. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, the altar is God's barbecue. You eat most of the stuff that goes on there. Right? That's what you do. What a great model of church, by the way. <laughs> Any foodies here? Yeah. Yay, right. Well, and, you, and what have you reduced this to, for crying out loud? Right? A little bit of biscuit and some sweet, sugary thing. Oh, my goodness me. Right? Surely Gnostics, I tell you. Anyway, sorry, come back to this. Right? And so you pass the... And then you've got the two great pillars that represent the mountains that uphold the heavens. And you walk inside, kind of into this area where we are now in this ordered space. And you've got candelabra, the light. You've got the showbread provision. You've got the incense, so the sweet-smelling rains of heaven. And then behind that right, is the blue veil. And there is the footstool of Yahweh. Right? So I think when Jesus dies, and whatever that curtain is, there's some debate about it, what he's basically pointing to is what Revelation says at the end, where the New Jerusalem, the size of the inhabited world, is a cube, the same shape of the Holy of Holies. So what Jesus' death is doing, and he symbolised it when he cleansed the court of the Gentiles. He says these courts are as holy as anywhere else. He's pointing to the fact that his death is going to make the whole of creation the Holy of Holies. So there's symbolism in the temple, but it's not typology, strictly speaking, because the temple can't actually decide to do anything. Typology strictly. Okay, so where does this get us? Here's the thing I'm really after um, as I I get into this. uh, And I probably should have a little look at this. Uh, Sorry. Got carried away here. Toward a general Christian theology. Here we go. Here's my suggestion. All of us get very excited about Jesus' words, remember the aphorisms, all that kind of stuff, right? But how many of us get excited about the narrative structure of the Gospels? How many of us take those things as seriously? (coughs) And if Jesus himself, Yahweh among us himself, said the two ways to really get me are in terms of Isaiah's new exodus and understanding Israel's feasts (coughs) pointing to the fulfilment of God dwelling among us through his spirit, How come we don't take that seriously? How come when it comes to doing our theology, we immediately get rid of that stuff and come up with our own series of categories? And we see no contradiction in arguing, he said this, and then completely ignoring his mindset to do our own thing. How can that possibly be? And maybe you've not even heard the question posed like this in this way before. 
Jesus seems to think that these narrative shapes are normative for being God's people. Why don't we? Perhaps we regard it as too Jewish. We know anti-Semitism was strong in the ancient world. Maybe it's too particular. Maybe it doesn't fit our churchly tradition. Maybe it's insufficiently universal or philosophical. So what happens is the gospel and scripture itself simply becomes a quarry for us to mine stuff to fit into our own better conceived theological structures. And this is not trivial, folks. We've already mentioned this several times. So it's the IBM principle, you know, seven times stupid. They taught us to tell people seven times. So you've got three already. If God's personal, you know persons through narrative, right? I don't know you because of a theological DNA map. Some atomic table of divinity doesn't tell me anything about God. It's walking through the narratives that really help us to get to know him. Now, I think if knowing God is about knowing his character, then it's really important that we be deeply embedded in these narratives because these narratives are what shape and school our moral decision-making and our emotional responses. And there are several scholars who notice that. That's why Hollywood is probably the most powerful educational institution in the world. If it gets you to cry, it's got you. Now, of course, if you're in the holistic world, you don't want emotion. That gets in the road of stuff. And you just kind of put yourself out of um, really changing most people's lives, if you like. Now, if I think about my theology classes back in the mid-1980s, I don't recall at any point the Gospels being mentioned, let alone seriously studied as providing the basic matrix for understanding the God who came to us in Jesus. And I think that's a really serious problem. Because if you think God is basically a big idea, guess how you'll end up treating people. Guess how you'll end up doing church. Guess how you'll end up doing evangelism. Because you want disembodied, <coughs> acultural, general statements, and it's going, to ch it's going to affect how we do things, folks. Now, you've got a choice to make. You can either think that God begins by saying, well, you know, those Jewish people, really, that's just kind of primitive. You should tell them Sunday school stories. Right? And, and, you know, Jesus, too, he's not quite there yet. He still tells little stories. That's okay. Paul's got a bit of argumentation. But we really have to wait for the third and fourth century for really serious theological reflection. And now at last we're on our way. That's one narrative. The other one is God knows exactly who humans are. And he knows that it's actually deep narrative, not, not tissue thin stuff like creation, fall, redemption. You couldn't grow anything in that. These stories have to be deep enough that your emotional and psychological roots go down and then they transform you. God knows what he's doing. So Ian McGilchrist, written this book, The Master is Emissary. Tony knows about this right brain, left brain guy. He says what the left brain does because of what it's doing, it's focused on, or it's a very narrow focus, it's about abstraction, decontextualization, fixity, static isolation, and yes, it gives clarity, but at the risk of being empty and lifeless. On the other hand, the kind of right brain focuses much more on what's deeply personal, culturally embedded narratives, the world of the individual and personal, characterized by the implicit room for change, growth and interconnection, Think about those two options. 
And I think you've got a nice kind of playoff between how we have traditionally done theology and what God gave us in the Gospels. So, I should probably leave it there for question time, but here's the question I'm leaving with you. um, I'm persuaded that the narrative structure of the Gospels is absolutely essential to being formed in the image of Christ. Absolutely essential. And part of our discipling should be that people get these stories deep down, not just the little aphorisms, but they actually indwell these stories of the Gospels. And that that should actually begin to be the centre of what a truly Christian theology is about. Okay, enough already. I've gone on for a long time. Thank you so much for listening. Um, Blue screen. Screen of death.